with confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph, so help us God. Welcome to Marching Orders, a this week community news podcast series devoted to Central Ohio military veterans sharing their experiences. I'm Scout Hummel. Let's get right to it. Our guest is an Air Force veteran who entered the Air Force Academy in 1960 and was commissioned in 1964. In June 1967, his aircraft was shot down during his 113th mission and 80th mission over North Vietnam. For the next almost six years, he was a prisoner of war at Hualo Prison, commonly known as Hanoi Hilton. He's a highly decorated man. The short list includes the Distinguished Service Medal, Silver Star with Oak Leaf Cluster, Distinguished Flying Cross with Oak Leaf Cluster, Bronze Star Medal with V Device, Purple Heart with Oak Leaf, Oak Leaf Cluster, Meritorious Service Medal, Air Medal with Silver and Three Bronze Oak Leaf Clusters, Air Force Commendation Medal, Prisoner of War Medal, Vietnam Service Medal with Eight Service Stars, Republic of Vietnam Gallantry Cloth with Palm, and Republic of Vietnam Campaign Medal. There's also a book about him called Life on a $5 Bet that describes the conditions of his capture, confinement, and subsequent release and proceeds, and proceeds to follow him to his life after freedom. From Columbus, Ohio, Major General Edward Meckenbeyer, welcome to Marching Orders. Well, thank you, Scott. Uh, appreciate you having me here today. By the way, that big long list of things, only one of them means anything, that's the longevity ribbon. The longevity ribbon? Yeah, that's what your pay's ba- based on. <laughs> Okay. These are all very impressive, i got to say. Thank you. Ed, this podcast will be a lot different from the, the other ones we usually have. Often I ask a lot of questions and sort of go through veterans' lives a lot before, during, and after the military. If I do that with you, this podcast is going to be six hours long. So I'm going to briefly just have you uh, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself to get to know you some. And, and then I'm going to get right to your story. Is that okay? That's fine. Lead on. So, so tell us a little bit about yourself. What keeps you busy these days? I know you're a big-time golfer. What else keeps you busy? <laughs> I'm uh, 76 years old now. And uh, every day starts with a little bit of golf as long as the weather's semi-decent. Uh, otherwise, I still do some consulting for a couple of defense contractors I'm on a couple public and private boards uh, in Florida and up here in Ohio. And uh, I find myself actually being as, as busy now, if not like most retired people, keep looking for time to do the things. But differences now I get to do things I want to do rather than what somebody else tells me to do. And I understand <clears throat> you have a little bit of uh, television experience in it as part of your background, too, right? <laughs> yeah, it, uh, the United States are in trade show is at, at Dayton for many years. And... Uh, they called shortly after I got home, and I think it was 1976 or 1977, they called me. I was in the Air Force, and they said, you know, would you like to be a technical consultant? Because they had done the air shows for several years with the regular news anchors and had no idea how fast airplanes were going, closing rates, and even the maneuvers. They did a good job. They said, would you, would you like to be, you know, off on the side there and kind of keep them straight? And I said, fine. So uh, I did that for, for one year, and they said, well, why don't you just be the on-air talent for the air show uh, in years to come? So I did that. And then Stan Mouse, who was uh, president of Cox Broadcasting down in Atlanta, happened to be from Dayton, Ohio, he said, gee whiz, this, this air show business is so much fun. Why don't we take this act on the road? So I kind of became an additional duty to Air Force Major Lieutenant Colonel Colonel uh, General Ed Meckenbeyer to go along with a company called Flyboys 
uh, as we televised uh, up to, I guess we did eight or nine or ten air shows a year around the country. And I was a dandy Don Meredith, so to say, for if your listeners are old enough and remember him, uh, on air show circuit. So you were born in Morgantown, West Virginia. Yep. You went to grade school in Erie, Pennsylvania, Albuquerque, New Mexico, and Dayton, and graduated from high school in Dayton. Mm-hmm. You're the oldest of eight kids. What was it like for you growing up with seven siblings? <laughs> well, you know, it was good to be the oldest. and uh, Nobody's beating you up, right? Nobody's beating me up, although uh, my brother Jim was a... Uh, you know, all-American type football player here in Ohio, all-state football player. So, you know, I kind of lived in his glory because his shadow didn't go behind him and went forward. People often thought, oh, Meckenbeyer, oh, I know you. You're the great football player. No, no. Uh, oh, you're the this. No, no, no. You. But uh, so I was 17 when I left home to go to the Air Force Academy. So my younger brothers and sisters are, you know, uh, still in their very formative years when I was there. But I was just, it was good to be the oldest. No hand-me-ups. And was the Air Force Academy or the Air Force in general, was this something you always wanted to do as a kid? I mean, what led you in that direction? I, I'm going to guess that this book, uh, $5 Bet, has something to do with that. Yeah, right on. Uh, as the oldest of eight kids, and my father was a, a welder and a steam fitter, he came to me one day and he says, you know, if you want to go to college, you better get yourself a real good scholarship. So uh, I said, hmm. He says, as a matter of fact, I'll bet you $5 if you want to get in one of these military academies, you can do it. I had no interest and no knowledge of anything else. I mean, as far as I knew, I was going to go off to Kansas City. I found a scholarship to uh, St. Joseph College in Kansas City, a pre-law school, which I always wanted to be a lawyer for some reason. So anyhow, I took the test just because he bet me. Ended up, I got an appointment to the Air Force Academy, and uh, that changed the direction of my life uh, for the better forever. You're listening to Marching Orders. I'm Scott Hummel with Edward McEnbyer. I... I can't imagine. I'm sure you thought that there's going to be some dangers when you did join. I, and we're going to get into your story here in just a second. But did you ever imagine the possibilities of what you were going to be going through eventually when you joined? No. I mean, you know, 17, like I said, when I went to the Air Force Academy, you know, 21 when I graduated, just a couple of weeks short of my 22nd birthday, fighter pilot world's greatest nothing can go wrong i'm in complete control here <laughs> so uh, no you never look at the at the downside and you just see the the fuzz and the glory and the and the glow and the all the good stuff and something did go wrong june 14th <laughs> 1967 this was the day that actually led to the to nearly six years of virtual hell for you mm-hmm. what was that day like early on before you were in the air for your 80th mission over north vietnam can you remember that morning? Oh, I can. It was one of those things that, I mean, I think anybody who goes through a traumatic event can recall what went on. Whether it's right or wrong, it's, I do remember stuff specifically. But uh, we had like a 10 o'clock takeoff in the morning for a 2.15 time over target uh, on a Fuchu Railroad Yard about 30 miles northeast of Hanoi. So it involved a briefing and everything. And I remember my last meal, which was uh, pork chops and green beans and mashed potatoes. And I remember as I was eating the meal, thinking, this is a heck of a last meal. I'd never had that thought before. So anyhow, we took off uh, and hit the tankers. It's uh, about uh, 300, 400 miles uh, from uh, Da Nang Air Base up to the Hanoi area. So we had to get refueling off a... the KC-135 tanker and then do our uh, strike package form up and then uh, go into the target area. 
so uh, everything was kind of kind of normal. Uh, but the, the interesting part about that was, is I didn't have to fly that mission. I was to the point in my uh, backseater in the F4, the uh, pilot systems operator. Uh, we were to that point to where we didn't have to go to Hanoi anymore. After you had 75 counters missions over North Vietnam, you didn't have to go to Hanoi. So how did it, it come to pass that you did? Well, we didn't have enough crews to go that day who were qualified to go to Hanoi. And so they said, Ed, would you mind going? I said, well, let me check with Kevin, Kevin McManus, my backseater. And I said, what do you think, Kevin? Kevin had 81 missions. He had a couple extras without me. And he said, ah, why not? Let's go. So uh, we volunteered to go. And your in-flight, what happened? Uh, we, it was a strike mission. Normally, the F-4s in Vietnam flew what was called MIGCAP, uh, keep the MIGs off the F-105 Thunder Chiefs who were carrying most of the bombs. But we'd been doing such a great job that the North Vietnamese Air Force hadn't challenged the uh, bombers in quite some time. So that day they put bombs on our airplanes as well, and we fell right into the strike package of 54 airplanes. F-105s and F-4s kind of staggered for an attack on the uh, Vuchu Railroad Yard. So uh, the tactic was very simple. We got in a 54-ship gaggle uh, and uh, went in towards the target area at 15,000 feet, which we did every day. So the Vietnamese knew exactly where to cut the fuses on the 85 and 100-millimeter uh, anti-aircraft gun. They knew where to set the fuses for if they had to do manual um, detonation on the SA-2 missiles. So we went screaming into the target. Everything was fine. Rolled into the target. It was like the old World War II. The best way to hit something is point right at it. So we rolled in from 15,000 feet, going just about straight down, pickled the bombs, and you start to pull off, try not to go below 4,500 feet where the small arms, all the rifles and pistols and everything else get to you back up. Get as quickly as you can above 11,000 feet where the 37-millimeter and you just think about it, you know, the lower you go, the more lead there is in the air. Below 4,500 feet, you've got everything. Uh, and then up to 11,000 feet, you've got, okay, the small arms don't get you anymore, but the 37, the 57, and the 85 are still good. So you're going to get back up above um, 11,000 feet as quickly as you could. But uh, one of the things about the F-4 was when the aircraft was in military power, 100% power, the engine smoked. So to a gunner on the ground, all he had to do is look up and say, oh, there's a black line, and at the front of that black line, I bet you there's an airplane. So what we used to do was we put one, one engine in afterburner. Aircraft did not smoke. Engine did not smoke in uh, afterburner. And the other engine in idle so that you wouldn't have this telltale trace pointing at us. But you had a speed limit. You couldn't light the afterburner above 600 knots. Kind of getting a little technical here, but anyhow, you had to be rolled in. Imagine going straight down with one engine and afterburner. You're going well over 600 knots. So as you release your bombs and you start pulling up, you want to get out of Dodge as quickly as you can once you get rid of your bombs, and you want to get back up above 11,000 feet. So you pull out, maybe doing 700, 750 knots, uh, you know, supersonic maybe. And as the airspeed went below 600 knots, then you lit the other afterburner because that was the maximum because now you don't care. You just want to get going fast. So I lit the other afterburner. Engine exploded. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, whether I was hit or whether it was just an engine malfunction, who knows. But the curious thing is, is I had been flying that airplane five days previous and had been hit in the right engine. 
and I took the airplane. It was on fire. I took it into uh, Udorn Air Base in Thailand. They fixed it, flew it back to Da Nang, and this was the air- first time the airplane flew after that. Mm, so it's possible that it was even a result from an earlier hit. And, you know, like I said, you know, the world's greatest fighter pilot, I was not shot down. I had an engine malfunction. Mm. Well, it resulted in the same thing, regardless. <laughs> and, uh, and it did. So did, did you end up parachuting, and they, and they got you on the ground? From- <clears throat> yeah, well, so we, we were... Still pretty close to the target area, obviously, because we'd pulled up and I lit the lit the afterburner, and the airplane started corkscrewing. It all the flight controls were gone. The F four had no manual flight controls, you no know, wires, pulleys, cables, bell cranks, anything. It was all hydraulic. So when the fire burned into the hydraulic system on the airplane, the airplane started doing snap rolls to the right. Left engine in full power, right engine dead. But I had to nose up about 45 degrees above the horizon again, trying to get above 11,000 feet when the engine failed. And then, boy, the airplane just started doing corkscrews. And every snap roll you know, over the nose got lower and lower and lower. And uh, we, according to the fellows who, uh, who saw all this, the uh, other people in the flight, the airplane was about uh, 45 degrees nose low. There was no airplane to be seen at this point. All they could see was a fireball, a big orange fireball. And I guess we ejected upside down because they said two seats came out of the bottom of the fireball simultaneously. The last airspeed I saw was 620 knots, about 700 miles an hour. Used to be an inch and a quarter taller compression fraction from the old uh, ejection seats. And Kevin and I bailed out at exactly the same time. And... uh, it was a short ride. We were about 4,500 feet in the air when we ejected. Before the parachute opened, which is one and three quarters seconds, the airplane hit the ground. Hmm. So, you know, kind of jokingly or dramatically, say, oh, I came within two seconds of dying. <laughs> but, you know, it was a short parachute ride. Yeah, you were up and low. Yeah. And um, as it turned out, we were over about six million people who had six million guns, and they were all down there shooting at us. So uh, the standard-issue weapon was a thirty-eight caliber pistol, which I knew was nothing more than a signaling device in a firefight. Mm-hmm. So I took that pistol, I looked at it, and looked down, and I saw all those people shooting at me. I could see, hear all these bullets flying by. I took that gun, <laughs> I threw it, because I didn't want them to believe I was going to try to outgun them. So when I hit the ground... You know, I was all tied up and ready for him. I landed right in the middle of a whole bunch of people in a village. And so you were actually conscious when you landed? After oh, yeah. The, wow. Yeah. I mean, you lose you lose track of all the, the ejection sequence, the wind blast, the hyperextension, and all the rest of it. I mean, that's just a, that just happens in a blur. But uh, I remember being in the parachute, broke my survival radius, because if you're going to land in the middle of a bunch of people, nobody's going to come rescue you. And what the Vietnamese did, of course, was they'd get hold of the radios and they'd act like they were an American and try to lure in a rescue. So the standard procedure was take your two survival radios, smash them together, break the batteries so that they couldn't use them. Did that and hit the ground. What were those first couple of minutes like in captivity as they're approaching you? Well, actually, I landed on the roof of a high-pitched roof of a building. I rolled down, hit the ground. I was all tied up when I hit the ground. Wow. So... uh, First thing I remember, of course, was looking up and seeing about six million people there. And uh, slight exaggeration, not much. Uh, They had me completely surrounded, and then they took out these two big machetes. And one guy started at the inside of one foot. The other guy started at the inside of the other foot. And they cut everything off me except my shorts. 
Wow. So, I mean, these these machetes must, you know, they were a good 12, 15 inches long. <laughs> so I'm just a little bit scared. They didn't try to unwrap me from my parachute. They didn't try to uh, open any Velcro snaps or anything else like that. They just cut everything off except my uh, undershorts and my uh, T-shirt. Was Kevin still with you at this time? Uh, Kevin landed a few feet away, but they, they separated us pretty quick and then brought us back together. And of course, they didn't want us to talk. And uh, so... Uh, after they uh, found out that I had, didn't have any gun, they were looking for that gun, obviously, that I had thrown away, probably. And uh, then they took my underwear away from me and gave me a, a loincloth, and, and Kevin as well. And then they proceeded to run us through a bunch of villages where the uh, people were just a little upset with our arrival and were throwing rocks at us and sticking us with bamboo uh, shards and things like that. And, of course, then they made us run from village to village to village. And uh, we were kind of sport. And that all culminated in uh, being told, now you die. Mm. And uh, it took us over. The Vietnamese dug slit trenches. They were about 18 inches wide and you know five or six feet long. And that was their anti-aircraft uh, shelter type place. So they took us over to a couple of those, and they stood us in front of them, just looked like looked just like a grave. And they said, now you die. And they got the firing squad out there, five or six guys with guns, and they went, moat high. One, two. More pictures, more pictures. Now you die. Moat high. Small children, move back, move back. Then everybody broke out laughing. It had all been a mock execution. But, you know, for a few minutes there, I thought, well, okay, I hope it doesn't hurt because it's going to be over here real quick. So they started with the psychological torture right off the bat. Oh, yeah. I was thinking. Yeah. Take us through those first few days of captivity, Ed. We've seen the movies. We've read various Mm -hmm. accounts, the torture, the interrogation. Mm -hmm. Senator John McCain, as we all know, was there as well. Uh What did you see? What did you endure personally those first few days? (laughs) Well, the Vietnamese, their command of the English language was not a whole lot better than my command of the Vietnamese language. So it got down to the point where they understood that there were more of them than one of me in a room, and they could hurt me physically because they couldn't have any kind of a intellectual dialogue uh, well, you know, spoken off you know, say, okay, you sign confession, you do this, you admit you did this you know, you denounce your rank you denounce your country, all that stuff. you know, I wouldn't do that, you know, name, rank, serial number and date of birth, but of course even that, uh, the guideline there is uh, evade answering further questions to the utmost of your ability, but the Vietnamese they just wanted to hurt you they just wanted, to, they were mad you know, they, no doubt about that. And so uh, they just beat the crap out of you. They had various techniques. They tie your arms behind your back and then rotate them up over your head, dislocating one or both of your shoulders. All the traditional things, you know, sticks in it, kicking you, uh, burning you with cigarettes and things like that. You're listening to Marching Orders. I'm Scott Hummel with Edward Meckenbeyer. Ed, I want to back off the mic here and let you just share your experience. I could ask a lot of questions, and if I have, if I end up having a question, I'll raise my hand for you. Okay. Uh, but basically, I, I, from here on out, just sort of, just sort of set the scene for us in general, what it was like there. Take us through those years at Hualo Prison: the pain, the starvation, the psychological and physical torture, the guards and neglect, friends you made, friends you lost, um, how you occupied your time when you had free time. Take it away. Okay. Well, 
you have to tickle my uh, memory of a few of those points. Basically, uh, the physical plant was much like uh, the old uh, Ohio Pen. It was downtown here for uh, for many years, built about the same time. It was built by the French uh, in the 1890s to put Vietnamese in, and significance there was everything was built to the size to accommodate a Vietnamese person, which is about 75 or 80% of the normal structure we had. So the cells were small, the manacles didn't really go around our wrists and ankles as, uh, you know, uh, they just crunch your bones when they use the thumb screws to close them down. So the, the, the physical thing, it just as um, Spring Street, I think it was, the old Ohio pen. So you just drive by that and you kind of get a look at what the wallow, the hell hole is, it's, uh, or fiery pot, depending on which version of the translation you take out of wallow. Old French prison downtown, and that's where, that's where we all started. And you spent some period of time... Nominally, you know, a couple, three weeks in what we call New Guy Village, where they were just trying to beat you to the point to where you would do anything, say anything that they told you to do. It was not an intellectual discussion. It was not a rational thought process and no dialogue. Uh, they were just trying to get you to sign a confession and try to intimidate you physically. And they did a pretty good job. You know, and as I said just a minute ago, you know, we're all taught and trained, you know, name, rank, serial number, and date of birth. But most people don't understand that even that sentence goes on to say, I will evade answering further questions to the utmost of my ability. So when they're trying to get you to admit to, uh, to crimes, of course you wouldn't do that. But when you get the same punishment, when you won't tell them the base pay of a second lieutenant, hmm. But to counter that, you don't want to act like you're going to be willing to say anything they say as long as it's not name rank serial number date of birth or something against your country so you don't you don't answer them anything or you lie you cheat you make up answers and things like that for the most part they didn't understand you were talking they were happy but basically, they, they wanted you to uh, give them biographical information, tell them things about your airplane, about missions and things like that, which you wouldn't do. And their only resort was to beat the crap out of you. That was the first couple of weeks. And then, then things got back down. I spent four years with one other guy in a seven in a nine by nine cell. Um, so, you know, you got to get to know Kevin Joseph Patrick McManus pretty well. Uh, 24 hours and... No, I mean, 24 hours a day. Literally, we spent literally spent 23 hours, 59 minutes, and 45 seconds a day in that cell. Uh, they moved us around every six months or so uh, just because they knew that we were clever Yankees and we had ways of communicating. Uh, a tap code, which kind of hard to describe with radio, but it was a five-by-five five matrix. And uh, we just took out the K because no way to accommodate uh, 26 letters in a five-by-five five matrix. But we'd tap on the wall, uh, a simple code, or uh, later on, after several years of banging our knuckles against the wall, somebody remembered that uh, as a Cub Scout, if you put a cup to a wall, you can actually hear through a solid medium. So uh, our communication there got more. But anyhow, we spent basically uh, 23 hours, uh, 59 minutes, and 45 seconds a day in your cell. You got out of your cell. Well, one of you got out of the cell once a day to empty the honey bucket which was uh, a porcelain pot, much like you see in the old movies from the West. And then uh, twice a day to get fed, 10 o'clock in the morning, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, you'd go inside and pick up your soup, which is about a quart volume of either seaweed soup or turnip uh, top soup or pumpkin soup. 
and about an equal volume of rice, complete with rocks, and then sometimes uh, a piece of moldy bread. And it's been characterized as somewhere between six and 800 calories a day that we uh, got a day. I, I went in weighing 198 pounds. I came out weighing 133. The good news is I haven't put all of it back on to where I was. But the, the day was, you know, they just left us in our cells. I mean, they take you out periodically for interrogation. Um, but uh, for us, it was just a matter of just, just a long, long time. And, and I'm going to jump ahead here just a little bit. And some people say, well, I couldn't take the torture. I couldn't take the isolation. I couldn't. We weren't special. We were just products of the American society. Sure, we had survival school training and things like that. We we're familiar with the interrogation techniques, but not with the physical abuse aspect of it. But, you know, people always sell themselves short. And they say, oh, I could never do that. Yes, you could. I mean, you just think about things in everybody's life. We all face challenges. We all face hardships. We all face things that going in, we say, oh, I couldn't do that. Well, I couldn't do what I did in my own mind probably uh, until I got out of jail in 1973. But, you know, you look around at all the other guys who were in there with you, and there, there were no supermen there. We were just ordinary guys doing our job, and we just never gave up. But the isolation had to be mm. pretty intense. I imagine to some extent maybe it was a relief that you were just in there and they weren't coming to get you and interrogate you, but the isolation, that that had to be difficult. The isolation was difficult, but you always had a cellmate. But I tell you, one of the most scary sounds. Mm. What did that mean? Jailer with the keys. Mm. He's coming to get somebody to go to an interrogation. And that that was scary because you never wanted to go. I mean, it was it was one thing to be, so to say, secure in your cell. But for those times when it was your turn in the barrel, so to say, for interrogation, you know, sometimes interrogations were, and after a, a period of time, even they knew that our military knowledge was worth nothing. So they were after propaganda, wanted to meet anti-war delegations. Don't want to do that. Beat the crap out of you. Go see an anti-war delegation. Beat the crap out of you to write an anti-war statement. Beat the crap out of you to make a tape for the uh, uh, soldiers in the South, which they played on their Voice of Vietnam radio. So, I mean, you, you just never wanted to go outside your cell. So there was a certain security just being in your cell with your cellmate. And uh, and then after a period of time, you know, uh, actually I spent basically four years with Kevin in a cell, but then uh, never with more than just uh, two other people. At one time, there were four of us in a cell, so that changed. And then in 1970, there was a Sante raid, and there's a, there's a whole lot of history here that we don't really have time to go into. It had to do with Ho Chi Minh's death in 1969. But uh, after the Sante raid, with, and things have been getting a little better in terms of the the food and the environment that we were in uh, until the Sante raid. Then they shoved us all back downtown in the French prison, and now we had 39 guys in one room. Yeah, this was part of the whole camp unity Right, thing, exactly. Uh, communal living. And that was wonderful. I mean, they, they took everything away from us because they thought, well, we had radios, we had compasses, we had guns, we had whatever they thought. So we, we were basically down to our skivvy shorts and each other in November of 1970. But that was a morale booster. Oh, though. you better believe it, you know, because now you can put a face and a shape to a, a name that you had just heard, you know, tapping on the wall. And uh, we had one group of guys, and they made themselves a little deck of cards out of uh, out of little pieces of paper that we found. And they, they played bridge for three days and so nonstop. I mean, the chatter was, was unbelievable. So, yeah, Camp Unity lasted about uh, from... 
um, November of 1970 till probably February of 1972, uh, 71 rather, then they move this back out again once they found out that you know the americans weren't going to come try to save, save us again or rescue us the sante raid was intended to uh release uh prisoners who were held in the rather remote part of uh of the hanoi area so then they started putting us back out into the uh dispersed areas other places other camps they had in fact i spent the last six months up in camp up in the chinese border which they figured okay nobody's going to come up here to try to rescue americans because it was in what's called the air defense identification zone a buffer zone between vietnam and china and we had strict orders not to violate chinese airspace so uh we were up there on the chinese border with no water no electricity so it was kind of an interesting experience up there a lot of snakes but uh you know it's one of those things, Scott, that um, people say, oh, I can't imagine it. But but again, we, we all have had these things in our lives, and you just find a way to cope. You find strength in the people that you're with and to the point that you made earlier about uh, making friends. Yeah, I mean, uh, there are guys that uh, I would literally you know, die for now you know, f- uh, because uh, we shared that experience. We understand that bond. The interrogation, mm-hmm. the some of them got really brutal, arms <laughs> tied behind your back while you're hoisted into the air. Mm-hmm. Do you make up stories, whether it's, you know, whether you know the truth or don't know the truth? Do you just make up anything just to stop the torturing if you don't answer correctly or not at all? I mean, well, again, you know, their knowledge of English was sometimes very limited. So key words for them are crime, criminal, guilty. So... If you know, after taking some days of abuse because you didn't want to be an easy patsy, they keep coming back to you. You wanted to set that bar to where they'd probably go pick on somebody else before they picked on you. But you know, they come in and they say, You will write your confession. You say, Okay, I will write my confession. I, Edward John Franciscus Meckenbeyer, fumerly a lieutenant in the Luftwaffe, because they understand it's Air Force, of the United States, am guilty. Magic word. Of bombing churches, dams, dikes, pagodas, cesspools, outhouses, and other ill houses of repute. I am my squadron mates, Clark Kent, Jimmy Doolittle, Abraham Lincoln, you know, have committed heinous crimes. So you, you just mispronounce words. You just put in fictitious names. That anybody who heard it would obviously know, hey, here's a joke going on. But the Vietnamese were happy because they heard crime. They heard criminal. They heard all those individual words that they wanted to hear. So we got away with a lot of things. They didn't recognize Clark Kent. They no. All those names. No, no. And, and in fact, at one time, they had a little, little morale booster, if you will. We had one of our guys, <clears throat> Quincy Collins, who was allowed to put on a Christmas show that they would play over the camp radio, which normally just had propaganda on it. And he wrote a song about how Sandman came and dropped his load. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they just didn't have a lot of understanding of the language. So We had a lot of fun. I mean, it, you know, I say we had a lot of fun. You got to keep your sense of humor. You got to keep your sense of perspective. And we did. You know, it never, it never got to the point to where okay, I'm going to roll over in a corner and die because this is miserable. You know, there was somebody else counting on you if it's only just your cellmate, if there are other guys in the camp. You know, we all kind of hung together. And uh, there was a strength. We could have stayed there for 100 years. And that had been just not fine, but we'd have endured. But to stay in this, to stay in one of those cells for just 23 hours, 59 minutes, <laughs> 45 seconds, 
you mentioned playing bridge and uh, the, the five by five sort of a code. How do you keep yourself busy I mean, in a situation like that? You're so isolated. You've got the, uh, the way of communication or, or putting the glass up to the, the wall or whatever. But what else do you do? I mean, you're there for almost six years. How do you occupy your time? You try to think of every beer that you can. And you ask the guys around you to name every beer that they can. Um, and then when we were in, in Unity, in Camp Unity, we had uh, language classes. We had French, Russian, German, and Spanish. And we had days where you weren't allowed to speak English. Um, you would, uh, if I was taking French and German, and I want to talk to somebody who was doing Spanish and Russian, I had to go find somebody else who had a common language uh, connection there so we could talk to each other. Mm. You know, that was, that was in unity. But when we were in the cells by ourselves, like when Kevin and I were just in this cell together, I mean, at one time, I knew every train station between New York City and the Montauk Point in Long Island. Kevin was from New York. So, I mean, so he told me all, and I remembered all those names from all those train stations. Uh, we had people who uh, who knew poetry, who people who knew history. We, we would share those things. And... Uh, and every day, of course, we we went through our list of names of everybody who was there. So if anybody got out early, like Seaman and Prentice, Doug Hegdel did, you know, bring out the names of the people who were there. So they, it's surprising. You, you can find ways to keep yourself mentally active if it's only just daydreaming and making up stories and things to, to share with your with your roommate. Now, the funny thing, of course, with me was I was a little bit limited. Kevin Joseph Patrick McManus. He went to the Air Force Academy in 1960. Hmm, guess who I met at the Air Force Academy? Kevin Joseph Patrick McManus. We went to pilot training together. You know, so we went a lot to already learn that you didn't right. already know. We went to Europe together. Then we got crewed together. You know, I was the aircraft commander. He was a, he was the guy in the back seat. I get shot down. I well, at least I can get somebody I don't know. No, I got Kevin Joseph Patrick McManus for a cellmate. But it was wonderful. I mean, uh, we got along well and. Uh, and it was just, I mean, it may be hard to imagine, but you kind of get used to the lifestyle. I mean, you still have the fear, like like I mentioned, the keys rattling or the guard walking through the gravel, coming to your door, go someplace else, don't stop here. But uh, but but you survive. And, and the human mind, the body, of course, is fantastic, and the abuse it can take and still be resilient, but the mind is even more so. Now, let's talk about the food a little bit. You had mm -hmm. mentioned that you got fed twice a day, and you're eating maybe top 600 calories a day. Mm -hmm. I'm sure this wasn't the, um, the freshest fruits and vegetables <laughs> and the, the best of meat. What are, what no was meat. the food like? <laughs> you know, I'm at, what, what was the food like? I mean, what, and I'm, I'm sure at some point there had to be some, some dysentery and some sickness just from eating the food. I oh imagine. yeah. And broken teeth from eating the rocks and the rice. Yeah. Like I said, it was uh, about a quart volume. Maybe just take a, um, a pumpkin, for example, and just chop it up and then boil it for 20 minutes in water. That was the main course. That was the soup. And then you got rice uh, that they cooked and gave you that much. Then we got two pints of water a day. Um, we only got fed once on Sunday, and it was just a sweet rice uh, gruel that we ate on Sunday. But that kind of helped you remember when Sunday happened and keep track of days. Um, on special holidays, like uh, their 4th of July, which is the 4th of September, their Independence Day, we got special meals. Um, you might get a little bit of pig fat, 
on it. And if you had a piece of pig fat that had a hair on it, I mean, that was camp-wide news. Talk about keeping yourself occupied and talking about, you know, if somebody had a, a piece of pig fat that had a hair on it, I mean, the whole camp knew about it before the, the day was done because it was it was news to be shared. Um, and every once in a while, yeah, you get some uh, on special days like that, you know, potato soup or something like that. But other than that, you know, the diet didn't change uh, most of those years. Um, after Ho Chi Minh died in, in uh, 1969, there was uh, an end to the torture as just a matter of routine. Like a guard could take you out anytime you wanted and just uh, work you over for no good reason. So torture as a daily uh, occurrence somewhere in the camp ended for a while. It came back in vogue later on. But um, the, the, the food... Uh, yeah, it just it just wasn't exciting. But, you know, so I still don't eat pumpkin soup, although I like squash soup, and I like rice, so it wasn't all that bad, I guess. But then you have the illness from, from the food, mm-hmm. whether it's from parasites or, or yeah. you just get sick in general. Mm-hmm. Were any of the guards, how, how did they handle you getting sick or if there was any major injury, not from even the yeah. beatings, just in general, what kind of care, medical care at all did you get? Very little. I mean, but but then again, they didn't have a lot of it to give to their own people. So uh, we had a boxy, a Vietnamese word for nurse, who would come around periodically. And um, let me see, I try to put this delicately. Um, their their um, basic hygiene just didn't exist. But every once in a while, like if you had uh, a rash or something like that, they'd come around to prove the humane and lenient treatment and just swab it with iodine. Mm-hmm. And there are certain parts of your body that don't take iodine well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they leave a, a little taste in your mouth. But they would do that. But uh, medical attention, uh, you know, I broke a tooth in the back, the last tooth on the back of my right jawbone uh, on a rock. And then I had an abscess in my face, according to some guys, was stuck out about two inches or so it seems like a bit of an exaggeration but just had a big abscess back there so one day they hauled me out and six or seven people jumped on me held me down and the guy went in there with a pair of pliers and jerked it out so uh, it was kind of the the way that they had uh and if you look at the, those of us who came home too uh, senator mccain was was famous obviously the vietnamese knew who he was they knew who he was he knew who his father was who his grandfather was so he got medical attention but it was not because John McCain did anything to uh, to earn it. It was because they were aware that they had a, had a prize there. But otherwise, you look at the group, and we were all pretty doggone healthy. Because if you weren't healthy, you didn't survive. Uh, John Pitchford had been shot in the arm, and so he had a dangling arm. Uh, Ray Voden, uh, names don't mean anything, but just a guy, and, and Billy Metzger, uh, and Don Ellis were guys who had obvious physical limps and gimps and things like that, but not because of, of any treatment that the Vietnamese gave. They just endured and survived anyhow. And what about the clothing that you had? I mean, was it just loincloth the whole time? Or did they try to clothe you at all? And yeah. did the clothes get worn out? No, we got uh, two sets of clothes. Uh, if you go over to the Air Force Museum at uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, you'll see the clothes we had. We had uh, two-tone red pink and darker red uh, striped clothes, you know, prison garb, so to say. We had two sets of those, and uh, then they gave us sandals, much like, you know, the thongs that people wear now, but they were made out of tire treads and inner tubes. Uh, That was it. 
Uh, and then for the first four years, we had one blanket. And then uh, after a little later on, we got two blankets because they got cold in the winter. But so, uh, as far as uh, what you had, it was not a long, deep pile of things to be washed. You're listening to Marching Orders. I'm Scott Hummel with Edward Meckenbeyer. Were you aware of anything that was going on back in America? I mean, 1972, what's President Nixon's troubles were just starting to escalate. Did the guards try to spin that to any of you guys in prison? Did they try to make it as though America's falling? Or were you really kept unaware of everything that was going on? We were kept unaware of everything that's going on except for the anti-war movement. Every Twice every day, the, the camp radio came on and uh, gave us a, a blast of news but it was all about how the American fortunes in the South are going down, the puppet regime in the South is corrupt, and we're losing, and it's just a matter of time until we lose the anti-war movement, you know, 60 million people marched on Washington and things like that. And uh, so there, there, was just, there was just no real attempt to uh, give us anything other than propaganda. Uh, there was no news, I know. Uh, no sports news or anything like that. Now, interestingly enough, we were not allowed to send or receive mail. There was no Red Cross. So whenever mail came in, very often it would just be, you know, there were peop- our families were sending us mail. We weren't getting it. Um, one of the guys one day found in a burn pile a picture of a, uh, actually not a picture, found a stamp, part of a stamp that had Neil Armstrong on the moon. Oh, wow. Now, Neil Armstrong went to the moon in, what, 1969? Mm-hmm. This was 1971. Hmm. And so the guy asked the interrogator the next time, he said, hey, what about this? Did somebody go to the moon two years ago? And he said, oh, soon you will hear. Soon you will hear. So a couple of days later on the voice of the camp came that uh, in, 19, in July of 1969, the United States had taken a very dangerous and callous and ill-advised step in exposing a man to the harsh environment and the dangers of the lunar surface. Because they care very deeply about how harsh the, the moon is yeah. in Vietnam, North but, Vietnam. But, that was second, but the reason they mentioned it was because the Soviet Union had achieved the greatest technological feat of all mankind in 1971 by placing an unmanned vehicle on the surface of the moon. So they just spun it completely in their direction. Were there any guards at all that... I wouldn't go as far as say they were sympathetic, but were they not as harsh as some of the others? Were, were any of them at least? They were programmable dolls. Some days they'd be nice. You know, slip an extra. We got three cigarettes a day. Some days the guard would slip an extra cigarette, and he'd turn right around and try to burn you with a punk stick. Next time he lit one, so it was like they were told, you know, don't get, don't be nice. You know, they were very. Um, we had one go, un- interrogator. And uh, he lasted two months because rather than take you to the interrogation shed or the torture rooms, he would actually try to have an intellectual discussion with you about the relative merits of communism versus democracy. And and he told us, he says, you know, the only reason we're fighting you, he says, because, you know, the clothes that you were wearing when you were shot down are better than anything I can expect to have in my life. But our Chinese and our Russian friends will give us good stuff. If we keep fighting you. So he lasted two months and they got rid of him. Uh, He came in one day and said there was an urgent need for interpreters in the front lines. You made quite a few friends, I'm sure, especially after Camp Unity. I Mm -hmm. imagine you lost some friends as well. 
Uh, yeah, more more so, of course, you know, in the, since we've been home, because uh, uh, there were if you made it into the general I call it to use a, uh, a current term, you know, if you made it into the general prison population, that you were you were healthy and you survived. Very few guys were killed as a result of torture by the Vietnamese. Disfigured, hurt permanently, semi-permanently, yes. But only a handful of guys were killed. And um, notably, you know, by some Cuban interrogators we had there. Um, but So if you made it, like I said, you know, past the first uh, couple of weeks of uh, New Guy Village, uh, and uh, and you, some guys, of course, were killed there. They were injured and didn't survive what the Vietnamese did to them. But if you made it into the general population, uh, other than notably Earl Cobeal and one or two other guys, uh, you survived. And so nobody died in the POW camp. I think the number of guys who were known to be prisoners and died in captivity is 63. Hmm. But those were not people that we'd ever met in the, in the general population. February 18th. 1973, mm-hmm. almost six whole years after your capture, finally you're a free man. Describe that first day, the next few days and the next few months. That had to have been an emotional roller coaster for you. Well, first off, I was with a group of 20 guys who refused to come home for five days because we thought that it was a propaganda trick. There were some guys who came home early during the war, as early as 1969. I think actually 1968, January 68. And let's just say that it was less than honorable circumstances. So when the Vietnamese came in and after they read the protocols to us about the end of the war on January 27th, uh, they came in on the, like uh, the 13th of February and says, okay, today you go home. And the way they did it was not in accordance with what they had just told us the protocols were. You know, one-fourth of us would go home as the troops were removed in South Vietnam. So... Uh, we wouldn't go. And we literally walked around naked, wouldn't put the clothes that we came home in, which we had never seen before, uh, for five days until an American officer in uniform came into the camp and said, the war is over. I'm giving you a direct verbal order. You can take this release. It's honorable. So so we did. But anyhow, uh, the flight from Hanoi, American C-141s uh, came into Hanoi to pick us up. And uh, flew us uh, two and a half hours to uh, Clark Airfield in the Philippines. And uh, on the airplane, there was a little preliminary medical evaluation. But I have to tell you that uh, there's a picture in, in the book of, as the airplane broke ground. And we all kind of kind of went nuts, you know, because, you know, now. Because even until the airplane broke ground and we got out of Vietnamese airspace, it was always that lingering this is a dream. This isn't really happening. This is a fantasy. That we're, we're going back. You know, we're not really free. And uh, so the, the flight to the Philippines was pretty much, you know, a lot of talking, a lot of, oh, yeah, yeah, stick that thing in my arm. Okay, but, 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 but yeah. Uh, mag- magazines to be read and, and drinks and things like that, uh, non alcoholic. So when we got to the hospital in the Philippines, uh, they had some, I don't know if they had telemetry in those days, but their medical team seemed to know what you could do. For example, the first meal I went down, I got in line and, of all people, there's an Asian nurse <laughs> there. I mean, you say, okay, how could they do that to you? And you have very nice Asian nurses. Uh, uh, Captain Meckenbire, what would you like to have? And I said, well, I'd like to have a steak, potatoes, and some vegetables. And she says, sure. I says, hold it. I said, I haven't been able to eat anything solid in over two years. 
because of my jaw and my mouth. And uh, she says, oh, she says, you can have anything you want. So she turned around to the cook and she says, get him a steak, mashed potatoes, and some vegetables. And then put it in a blender. (laughs) (laughs) So my first meal was through a straw. Oh, no. And then uh, we were in the Philippines for 48 hours. I think I spent 40 hours with my mouth open, not talking, uh, in a dentist chair. And I got 13 root canals. Getting caught up on current events, I imagine... There had to have been a lot of shockers. Everything that had, from 1967, now it's 1973. <laughs> a lot went on in, the, in those years. Yeah. Over here, the shock had to be pretty, uh, I'm sure you were pretty shocked. You had to have been stunned. Well, I tell you, Scott, we, we had a different approach to it. They'd put together a book called Why You Were Gone, and it was all the headlines for the last, you know, in my case, six years, and Everett Alvarez's you case eight years and four months so but if you go back and you take was the longest serving uh yeah. pow mm-hmm. so if you go back and you just look at the news headlines from five ten years it's all the bad stuff i mean the newspaper doesn't carry wonderful things that happens so when i started going through that i said I don't care about this. This is just all the bad stuff. Tell me about some guy. Like, I still don't believe the Mets won the World Series in 1969. (laughs) There are those things. So, you know, we just adopted the attitude that today is the first day of the rest of your life. And I think most of us just said, okay, boom. We're not going to go back. We're not going to try to catch up. Um, Our contemporaries have, uh, you know, got six more years of education, training, experience, an opportunity we're never going to catch up you can either burn yourself up trying to catch up with your classmates in the air force academy or you can go down a different pike and so with all the the news and everything else we just kind of said okay today from 14th of june 1967 to 18 february 1973 if you ask me a question about trivial pursuits or something i say eh, don't know i'm I, king's x not mine and and i just never tried to catch up because like i said the first blush it just wasn't worth reading. It's been 45 years since your release. Uh-huh. I mean, to the month, it's been 45 years. Has it ever gotten easier to put all that behind you? And how have you been able to move forward? You, you stayed in the military for several years afterwards. Mm-hmm. Did that help? It did. I mean, again, you know, uh, putting on a blue uniform every day was a little bit of a security blanket. And, uh, and uh, of course, then I had, I had a dual career in industry as well. But, you know... You have to look at the average age of the guy who was shot down was 33. Mm. It was kind of was like an old man's war. And so even us young guys, I was 24 when I got shot down. And my attitude was, okay, I'm, I was 20, two weeks short of my 25th birthday when I got shot down. I said, I'll be darned if I'm going to spend a significant birthday like the 25th in his hellhole. So I took a year off every year I was there. So when I was released, I was 17. Hmm, and I'm back up to 28 now. So, I mean, it, it, it's an attitude. And so having the uh, the older guys there to to lean on, to draw wisdom, to protect and things like that. You know, we, we never felt sorry for ourselves. And I don't know anybody. Literally, I mean, I hate to speak for the whole group. But, you know, we had a few guys when we came home that committed suicide and couldn't make the adjustment and things like that. But for the most part, I think that if you asked me and most of the fellows to, to describe those years, it was okay. It was, it was an experience. I mean, it wasn't particularly enjoyable, but it didn't mar me. It didn't 
pervert my mind, didn't uh, keep me from uh, achieving uh, whatever I have in life. You know, and, and there's three different kinds of uh, PTSD. You know, there's one that we always hear about, which is the bad kind. Mm-hmm. And then there are the guys who have PTSD that, okay, that's nice, and they just kind of compartmentalize it. They, they deal with it. They handle it. They don't live it out. And then there are guys who take the experience and use it as the launching pad for the rest of their life. Not that, oh, I'm wonderful. I was a POW in Vietnam. and I did But they just say, okay, I survived that. I know I'm stronger. I can do. Yeah, I think most of us are in that last category that, you know, it, it was an experience. Lessons learned. Don't want to go there again. Thank you very much. Keep going. And even the lessons you learned Still, your your children seem to follow your footsteps. You had the, uh, <laughs> you had the. I'm sure a very proud moment last August. Uh, tell me about that. Well, uh, one of my children. Well, actually, two of my children are in the United States Air Force. I have always had the privilege of them and their spouses, by the way, who are, who are in the military. Uh, I've always been asked, and I greatly appreciate the opportunity to re-enlist them and to promote, and to promote them. So. Uh, Ever since, you know, I, even as a retired officer, I can do that. So uh, when my daughter called said, Dad, I need you to reenlist me one more time. She's going to get out after 25 years, she says. Of course, she was going to get out for 20 years, but she didn't. And uh, my son's coming up for another reenlistment uh, later on this year, and I'll, I'll go out and, uh, and officiate at that. So, yeah, I mean, I'm proud of all of my kids. i got four kids, and I couldn't be prouder of, uh, of any other four people in the world. And last question, Ed, and this is the same question I ask every veteran. We often hear the 22 a day. It's the number of military personnel mm-hmm. and veterans uh, who succumb to suicide. You've lived through some, some of the most horrendous conditions one could imagine for several years. You've described how you think that anybody could have done it. But let's face it, you did it and not everybody else did. A lot of people who are really struggling... What is your advice, your message to those who are struggling just to get through it, that, that post-military life? Yeah, don't be alone. You know, and to the rest of us who, who don't have that problem, you know, don't have that tendency, don't have that inclination, you know, be alert for people who, who are loners. Be alert for people who do seem to dwell on, on past events that were very traumatic. Don't let them be alone. Friends don't let friends be alone and look for it. I mean, it's so sad, but it's only because these people don't have a hand to hold. They don't have a, a beacon to look for. They don't have, they're not being told how important they are, how important their experiences. And the fact that, you know, you can get religious about it. You can say you're one of God's children and all the rest of that. You can say, but you're never alone. The old saying, you know, once a Marine, always a Marine. You know, the, the brotherhood of the Marines is fantastic, you know, because they have that, that culture that, uh, you know, you may not wear the uniform anymore, but you're still a Marine. And we need to have that attitude taken towards any veteran who's, uh, who's out there, particularly the ones who are uh, going through some physical, emotional, economic uh, things that might lead them to do something that makes them part of this 22-a-day statistic. Major General Edward Meckenbeyer, thanks for joining us, and thank you for your service. Thank you, Scott, for the opportunity to tell the story. Listeners, we want to hear from you. Tell us what you think of marching orders or let us know about a veteran you believe should tell his or her story. Email us at online at thisweeknews.com. That's online at thisweeknews.com. Subject line marching orders. 
And check us out online at thisweeknews.com and look on our website for a new section, thisweeknews.com slash marching orders. We've got everything there related to our podcast. We have profiles of veterans, and we even have some military notes and just other military-based stories. So check that out. Again, that's thisweeknews.com slash marching orders. And look for us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram. Everything is at This Week News. That is at This Week News. For This Week Community News, I'm Scott Hummel. Thanks for listening.